Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome back, nerdlings. This is our special part two of the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders episode. In today's episode, we're going to do a quick recap of where we left off. And if you didn't listen to part one, pause this episode and go back and listen to part one first, then come back and do this half. We're also going to discuss the suspect and conclude with where the case is at today. And before we get to tackling our case, we thought we did have a couple of things to mention. Yeah, I know in the first part, I had mentioned that I actually read this book uh, when I was a child that was written about this case. And I did actually hunt down the name of that book. It turns out there's only two books written on this case between when it happened and now. And the book I had read was actually called Someone Cry for the Children. Unfortunately, my copy of this, it was my grandma's copy of it. I'd given it back to her. It ended up lost to time. Uh, which is heartbreaking because this book is actually out of print and it was the first book written about this case. And I'm a little bummed that I can't get my hands on it because finding, or you can find the book online and you can purchase it, but it's crazy expensive. Yeah. I did try to look up this book. It's it's pretty pricey. Definitely out of my budget right at the moment. Right. Yeah, for sure. But it's one that if I could ever get my hands on a copy of, I would love to read again. And if any of you, maybe ask your parents because my grandma was the one who had the copy. I wish I still had it. But, you know, it's definitely, I remember reading this and just, it was really, really well done, really detailed information about this case. So just wanted to kind of throw that out there of what that book was for y'all. Yeah, perfect. And with that, nerdlings, It's time to pick up our flashlights and begin our search for the answers in the woods of rural Oklahoma. Yeah, this has been a rough ride so far, so we wanted to just go straight in today. This case is just one of those that I honestly think it leaves more questions than any answers. Heads up now. So just to do our usual disclaimer, just before we get going, this case does deal with the brutal rape and murders of three very young girls. Honestly, they were children, so just want to give you guys a heads up. This is emotionally rough. It was rough for all of us researching it and talking about this case. So, you know, we just want to give you guys as much information on that as possible. Ash and I, we've already talked about the really graphic details in part one, but we may actually have to refer back to some of the pieces from that first half. So we just want to remind folks that this, you know, may trigger you. And if it does in any form of way, we completely understand if this isn't the episode for you, come back and visit us for a little bit less intense episode. So, you know, like we say, we always just like to give you guys a heads up. It's this is not an easy case. We are talking about the brutal, brutal rape and murders of three very young girls. So we get it. And with that, let's talk about what's happened so far. So we're diving back into the summer of 1977. And the day is June 13th, and it should have been the most exciting day for these young Girl Scouts who were at the Camp Scott Girl Scout retreat. Instead, that day would begin with horror and heartache. 
the bodies of three little girls who had resided in Tent 8, Doris, who preferred to be called Denise Milner, was age 10, Michelle Goose was age 9, and Lori Farmer was the youngest of the campers at age 8. The girls had just been discovered on a path alongside what was known as the Cookie Trail for the Kiowa campsite. After the discovery of the girls' bodies, the camp sent the remaining Girl Scouts home on a bus to Tulsa for their families to pick them up. To this, I can't even imagine what it felt like to be the parents waiting. They didn't even know what had happened, that a crime had occurred. They just knew that an accident had happened. But even that moment must have been terrifying for any of the parents involved. So far, the police were able to obtain some evidence, which consisted of one partial bloody footprint, which was from the scene within the tent, which was identified as a size nine and a half boot print. They also obtained one lone hair that was said to possibly belong to someone of Native American descent. Semen was also found within the victims, as was a red flashlight with some tape on it that was left alongside the bodies. So one of the things I had read on that is that they found a fingerprint on the lens of the flashlight. I've heard conflicting information on this as well. So some reports say that there were no fingerprints found and then others say that the flashlight had one, but it's never been identified as to who that that fingerprint belonged to. I'm personally leaning towards one was not found just because I feel like that maybe would have exonerated or confirmed the primary suspect in this case. Remember, it's still unsolved. I found conflicting reports. I couldn't really get a, a pin down on that one, but I wanted to give you guys both options. So tape and nylon rope was found at the scene as well. And this is the reminder that that, that rope was used to bind the girls. Two of the girls were found bound and one was tied with a thin rope and the other was tied with rope and with that tape. Analysis showed what looked to have been multiple weapons used on the girls when they were bludgeoned to death. Two of the girls were bludgeoned to death and the third girl, Denise, was bludgeoned and then she was asphyxiated. And the asphyxiation is actually what had killed her. We didn't mention in the first half, but I did find some in some additional research that there was a Tulsa World article that stated one of the girls, she was hit once. Another of the girls was actually hit six times. And the third girl was struck three times. I can't that even imagine. That's so, ugh. No fingerprints were found during the initial investigation. Police were able to determine that the tape and the rope had been stolen from a nearby farm. And the girls' parents were notified that an accident had occurred and that their girls did not survive. But remember, they were not given any details as to what had happened to their little ones while they were away at Camp Scott. They were just told an accident happened. They later found out from the media what had actually happened to their daughters. One interesting piece of information that happened previous to the girls' murders was that that a strange occurrence had happened around the camp. So two months before the murders in April, a camp counselor stated that her personal belongings had been ransacked and food was actually taken from her. Sleeping bags were also strewn about, and whoever had taken the food also left a grisly note in the empty donut container, which promised to return and kill three campers. Ugh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. And this was two months before the actual murders took place. Hmm. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if that had... I wonder if that was just a silly prank or if that had everything to do with this case. Yeah, it's kind of what I wonder too. I think everyone's going to always wonder that, unfortunately. So there was also about four to five sheets of small notebook paper 
that had the word kill written over and over again. While the threat was very serious, the counselor disregarded the notes as a prank and threw them out as she had heard from another group of girls at the camp that weekend had actually confessed to doing the threats. See, I, I don't blame her on that one. It's awful and it sucks because that could have been really, really, really important evidence. But this is groups of girls coming in and out. They're teenage tweens, really. This kind of stuff happens and it's not a funny joke, but I could absolutely understand why they would have just dismissed this, especially because the murders hadn't happened yet. So no blame there. Yeah, definitely. I can totally understand that because, I mean, like you said, they're tweens. They're tweens. <laughs> they don't realize it's... what they're saying ha- would have no crazy no. effect. No, not two months before. It's just crazy. But one thing that was also found was an effigy of a man was found on a tree hanging from its neck during that time. Oof. Just woof. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That's not yeah. a good sight. <laughs> nope. Earlier on in the day that the murders took place, a counselor did find one of the tents had been cut open with a knife. Again, like we said, this wouldn't have been super alarming you know, at the time, murders hadn't yet taken place. No one's really, it's 1977. People aren't thinking that way yet. So that brings us to the next piece of this case, which is police trying to figure out who on earth would brutally rape and murder three innocent little girls. Yeah, and there wasn't a lot of initial suspects when the girls were first found murdered lying on that trail. A nearby landowner did state that they heard quote, quite a bit of traffic on one of the remote roads near the camp in the early morning hours of June 13th. But, I mean, police brought in dogs to help search the area after the girls were murdered for any clues in the woods. And these dogs were highly trained dogs from Germany and had been used in investigations beforehand into bank robberies and another previous murder case. And there was one man who was questioned early on in the case regarding the murders. Three highway patrolmen and a deputy sheriff went to a town called Miami, Oklahoma, which is about 60 miles away from Locust Grove. This is where they questioned a man who had been arrested on a complaint of public drunkenness. He was later returned to his cell and nothing further came of that questioning. The man's name was never released and he was not considered a suspect after they interviewed him. Ten days after the bodies of Denise Milner, Michelle Goose, and Lori Farmer were found, a number of items that related to the killings were found in a cave that was about three miles away from Camp Scott. In the cave, investigators discovered a roll of tape and a pair of sunglasses in a vinyl case. This was one of the items that had been taken from a camp counselor at Camp Scott. They also found these items that belonged to a convicted criminal, and this criminal was also a prison escapee. Among these items were some photographs that had been developed by the prison escapee. That prisoner's name was Jean Leroy Hart. Hart, it turns out, had been on the run from police for about four years after he escaped from the Mays County Jail. Hart had previously been convicted of the rape and kidnapping of two young women. Police had a fugitive warrant out for Hart since 1973, and at this point, Sheriff Pete Weaver called in the FBI. This is when the largest manhunt in the history of Oklahoma had begun with over 600 volunteers signing up to help in the search of Jean Leroy Hart. 
I still have so many questions about what led up to these murders. You know, why these girls and honestly, even still to this day about their primary suspect, Jean Leroy Hart. It's been 40 years and it's still so unknown to this day. So we're going to dive a little bit into just who was Jean Leroy Hart. So what made police think he was their guy? I'm going to go over some of Hart's personal and criminal history before he became the primary suspect in these grisly murders. So, Jean Leroy Hart was born about a mile away from Camp Scott on November 27, 1943. Hart had been a prominent local figure previous to his time in prison. He was known as a local football hero in Locust Grove, and growing up, he was a player for the Locust Grove Pirates. His football career was a huge part of this case. It's mentioned in a lot of the articles that were about him from that time. I kept seeing it over and over again. And so it was just one of those things we wanted to point out because it does kind of influence this case later on. The fact that he was a football star even graced the headlines of a lot of the papers when they were talking about the manhunt and even leading up to his trial. Hart was known as a skilled athlete. He also played basketball in high school alongside playing football. And an important piece is that Hart was part of what is known as the Cherokee Native American tribe, and that is the Native American tribe of Oklahoma. Hart was described by former classmates as a quiet, polite, and he was a good-looking boy. As an adult, Hart worked in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a flint steel company. And when Hart was 22 years old, he actually committed his first crime. In 1966, when he was 22 years old, Hart was arrested and later pled guilty to raping and kidnapping two young pregnant women who were ages 18 and 19. On June 4th of 1966, Hart did not show up for shift at Tulsa Flint Steel. Instead, that night, he abducted two young pregnant women from a parking lot outside of a local Tulsa nightclub. He abducted the women from that parking lot and according to their account, he forced the girls at gunpoint into the trunk of his car, and he then drove them out to Locust Grove, which, of course, is his hometown. And it was in the woods of Locust Grove where he brutally raped and sodomized both women, and he left them for dead in the woods. The women were bound and gagged, and both were left naked. They managed to survive their brutal attack by escaping their bonds and immediately went to the authorities after Hart had left them for dead in the Locust Grove woods. The women were able to give police a fairly detailed description of their assailant, the first four numbers of the, his license plate, and the vehicle, as well as the make and model of the car. Go them and their observation skills, man. That's crazy in that moment that they were able to do that. Yeah, seriously. The women were then able to identify Hart via photos provided by the police and it was later that day that Jean Leroy Hart was arrested and he did plead guilty to the rape and kidnapping of the very young women. Hart was charged with first degree rape and two counts of kidnapping stemming from the June 4th attack. Hart was convicted and received two concurrent 10-year sentences. Hart only served three years of that 10-year sentence for the actual crimes as he was granted parole in 1969. I have to keep reminding myself that this is the 1960s, but man, this doesn't feel right at all, at all. Three years for rape and kidnapping with the intention of murder. 
yeah. that it's nothing. Jeez Louise, that is yeah, that is awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think we have a long way to go on how we convict rape crimes, but this is three years is unbelievable. And he abs I mean, you don't leave three two women bound after you've raped and sodomized them and without the intention of, you know, leaving them for dead. Seriously, and he should actually get double that because both of them are pregnant. Right? I know. It's 1960s, so I'm, I'm trying to remember that, but that's a hard one to swallow. So now we fall into the year of 1969, and Hart's been released from prison. Hart went on to have a week-long burglary spree that year, and the dates of that started on June 1st, 1969, and he continued his spree until June 7th, 1969, when Hart broke into four homes. Happened to be that the last home he broke into belonged to a Tulsa police officer named Heather Campbell. Campbell had just returned from a shift and she was still half awake when she happened to hear someone trying to force the lock on her apartment. She immediately went to investigate with her gun and as soon as she kind of comes up on it, she sees an arm coming into the room via that door and reaching for her purse. She pulled back the hammer on her gun, and that sound caused Hart to retreat. She immediately called the police, and when the officers arrived on the scene, they heard the sound of another doorknob being jingled. Lo and behold, they found Jean Leroy Hart trying to break into yet another home in that apartment complex. Hart was arrested without resisting, and while police searched his vehicle, they found the purse of one of the other break-in victims, and in it, they also retrieved two other billfolds from victims of recent robberies. Hart pled guilty to the burglaries, and he was sentenced to a maximum of 305 years in prison. Yeah, he gets 305 years for theft, but only serves three years for rape. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing I will, have, will make a note of is, is that I couldn't tell. There's a couple factors that I can't tell if that was part of his 305 years or if that was what it was previously previously set as, because he does, of course, escape. So that's the part I'm not sure about, is if they're combining the, the term after he had escaped from prison, or if it was previous to that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really find any definitive things on that. So all I could find was that he was sentenced to 305 years. So just a little clarification on that. So it may include the escape charges, but still, 305 years, and he only served three years for rape. In 1973, Hart escaped from the Mays County Prison. And after that, he literally disappeared into the dark forest of the Oklahoma woods and wasn't seen for four years. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This guy is literal trash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. he is definitely... At this point, he is definitely the top of the suspect list for me, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, me too. I, I go back and forth on on some stuff with this case. But at the end of the day, he did commit rape against two women, and he sodomized them and left them for dead. So there is that point to this. Yikes. Yep. So this all leads up to the manhunt that began 10 days after the brutal murders of those three innocent girls. On June 23rd, 1977, Mays County District Attorney Sid Wise called to have a news conference set up. 
At that conference, he announced that a suspect had been determined in the rape and murders of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose. They also announced that they would be charging that suspect with the crimes. It was, in fact, 33-year-old Jean Leroy Hart, who had been on the run for nearly four years. It was known to the police that Hart was an expert woodsman, and his family still lived in that area. Police began their full-on manhunt for Hart. They utilized planes for searches, civilian volunteers, and law enforcement officers. During that 10-mile perimeter search, they found a t-shirt, a brown fatigue-style jacket, and some footprints that casts were made of. Interviews were conducted with any known associates of Hart, including his family and friends. Unfortunately for law enforcement, they weren't able to get a pinpoint on Hart, and days would later turn to weeks and then eventually months. Even during the manhunt, there were locals who didn't believe that the quiet athlete was capable of crimes such as this one, despite his guilty pleas on two previous unrelated rape and kidnapping charges. One thing that began to happen in the community was a divide within some folks believing that Hart was guilty and others empathizing with him and not wanting to believe his guilt. Many accusations began to be heard regarding possible racism against Native Americans being the reason he was the prime suspect. Some folks thought it was because Hart had successfully escaped prison and that the sheriff, Weaver, had a personal issue against Hart and that's why he was the prime suspect. Police were receiving countless tips on sightings of Hart during this time. Eventually, the leads in the sightings died out, and on April 6, 1978, 10 months from when the manhunt began, Hart was discovered living in a small wood shack in the Cookson Hills of the eastern Cherokee County. Police received a tip that day, and OSBI agents made their way to the home of the man named Sam Pigeon. The tip came from an informant who was quoted from former OSBI agent Harvey Pratt as saying, that's where he's probably staying. At Pigeon's home was the man who escaped prison and hidden from law enforcement for 10 months. Gene Leroy Hart was arrested that day. OSBI's chief investigator, Dick Wilkinson, stated that he believed then and believes now that they had captured the killer. Oof, yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, it seems like Leroy is the best bet. I don't, I don't know. I, I I never could figure out why, what it was so immediately that made the police think that it was Hart. I know they found some stuff in the cave, but they were like pretty quick onto the, the Hart's our guy bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. Part of me wonders if it was like because he was already wanted and had had that previous rape charge. I mean, it makes sense if that's the case, but I would be curious what evidence was found that would really point that way outside of some some circumstantial stuff that they had found. But yeah. I couldn't find anything about definitive on that. So while police had apprehended Gene Leroy Hart, the questions never seemed to really get answered regarding just what had happened that night on June 13th, 1977. Gene Leroy Hart's attorney, Garvin Isaacs, was actually quoted as saying, Gene Leroy Hart was an innocent man wrongfully accused of a crime he did not commit. He also went on to state, the tent where the murders happened had a footprint in the blood. That footprint was a nine and a half. Hart's footprint would be an 11 and a half. 
this is one of the questions I, I keep going back to too. I personally have my own theories that we'll get into towards the end of this case, but that to me is one of the ones that a lot of times I'm like, oh yeah, Gene Leroy Hart seems like a good primary suspect for this. But I go back to that nine and a half boot. The idea that a man with 11 and a half shoe is then squeezing into a nine and a half doesn't seem really realistic, especially to be tramping around the woods doing what he he did that night. I don't know. It just seems weird. I don't really have a good theory on the nine and a half boot print. Gene Leroy Hart was slated to go to trial for the brutal rape and murders of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose on March 5th of 1979, nearly two years after these three beautiful girls were taken from this world. At trial, the focus from prosecutors was to be on the hair found in that tent and that had bore similar microscopic characteristics as a sample taken from Hart after his arrest. So one thing of note is that that type of analysis is not actually allowed in a court of law in this day and age. It's not considered conclusive enough. I'm not really sure why, but they, they do not allow that type of, of um, kind of analysis to be done. The tape that was found on the flashlight lens also came from a roll of tape that was found near Hart's boyhood home. It was also reported that Hart was seen near Camp Scott about 16 days before the murders while he was visiting his mother's home. The defense's main arguments were to be that the shoe print didn't match Gene and that the evidence was circumstantial at best. The case came to a head on March 31st, 1979, when the jury went to deliberate. After reviewing the case for four hours, the jury returned with a verdict after only 40 minutes. They found Gene Leroy Hart innocent of the crimes of raping and murdering the three young girls. <sighs> oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Gene Leroy Hart wasn't out of the clear, though. He still would be sentenced back to prison to serve out his 305-year term for burglary. But he was acquitted of the brutal rape and the murders of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose. Hart was taken to the state penitentiary in McAllister to serve anywhere from 145 to 305 years of those prior burglary sentences and his escape from prison. Like I said, I wasn't sure. I think they this is the the 305 number I see referenced quite often is actually referencing the fact that it's combined with his charges for escaping prison and breaking his initial parole. Only two months later, while he was on a treadmill at the McAllister State Penitentiary, Gene Leroy Hart suffered a heart attack and died. He was only 35 years old. There are still questions to this day whether Hart actually committed the crimes or was this a case of law enforcement wanting to have a suspect so desperately and Hart was convenient or even worse, was he a suspect because he was a Native American? Did Hart manage to escape conviction because he played up the innocent local football hero angle? These are all questions that will remain until more evidence can come to light. This case is still listed as unsolved as Hart was fully acquitted of the crime. In 1989, genetic testing was done against the semen to determine if there was a match, but that was determined to be inconclusive. In a report done by the Oklahoma Oklahoman, which is a local paper, 
it was stated that several unnamed sources close to the case stated that Leroy matched in three out of the five points for body fluids that were obtained at the crime scene. But three out of five does not mean he is a perfect match, as the other two tests were inconclusive. So that's why that was actually registered in the 80s as inconclusive. They couldn't get a full 100% match. In 2007, OSBI received a federal grant that would allow them to have the DNA evidence in several unsolved cases examined by private laboratories utilizing the best in DNA testing. OSBI in 2007 reached out to seek permission to test semen stains from the pillowcases that were found at the crime scene and other evidence such as an anal swab, which came from one of the victims. Unfortunately, no DNA results were able to be obtained from the evidence as it was so degraded after nearly 30 years. In 2008, DNA tests did show a female DNA link, however, and that DNA did not match any of the three girls. And it had been speculated for decades that a woman may have been involved with the rape and murders. One interesting thing that I found along the way is that Lori Farmer's mother was actually quoted back in 2008 as saying that she always felt that there was a female involved in the murders in some way. There's also been many theories that it was several men who attacked the girls so savagely that night, or possibly that Jean Leroy Hart had at least one other accomplice. Perhaps it was a female. The Farmer and Milner families ended up filing a $5 million civil lawsuit against the Magic Empire Council, who owned Camp Scott back at that time. The jury filed in favor of the Magic Empire Council. And one thing to note is that many of the family members, specifically the farmers, stated that oftentimes in this case that the Girl Scout Council would often treat them like they were adversaries rather than trying to help them out, especially understanding that this did happen at their camp. It, it often seemed like they they didn't really understand that the farmers and the milners and the goozes were should be allies, not not adversaries. That that was just how the families felt. But Camp Scott is now an overgrown lot that was sold off by the Girl Scouts and bought by a private citizen. There are still some remnants of the Girl Scout camp that once stood there, but it is merely a shadow lost to time and overgrowth. Oh, man. Yeah. That image, it just reminds me of all those, like, abandoned, Mm -hmm. like, parks that just have all the overgrowth. Yeah. I I will put on the, the website, there are some phenomenal resources that I found that had some really great photos of what the camp looks like now also what it looked like then as well as some crime scene photos, things like that. I will put that on the website for you guys to check out if you want, as well as some other sources that we utilized in this. But those were, it, it, that's literally, that description is literally what it looked like. It's it's really just overgrown at this point. I had read that it's become private like hunting land and stuff that it's not really utilized at all anymore. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, it's just, it's so frustrating that, I mean, the whole DNA that wasn't able to be obtained or had been degraded after 30 years. That's, oh, it just sucks. Like we're so close, so close, but then. To have it drift away like that. And and it was tested multiple times over the years. So, you know, 80s, the 2000s, I don't think they've done it in the recent years. You know, the last time I think it was tested, anything was tested was like 13 years ago, but 
they may not have much evidence. I know that the anal swab, one of the reasons they had to get permission was because the test alone to do that would destroy the evidence, which happened. So yeah. there's no no way to retest that. Ugh. Yeah. That's so, so, so unfortunate. Yeah. I, I think it's, I don't know. I don't know who I think did this. I, I really don't. I, I don't know where you stand, Ash, on this one, but. Yeah. And it sucks because the only person that might have had answers died at 35. <laughs> yeah. I had that same thought was that the one person who might have been able to shed some form of light was Twitch's heart. He's gone. He's been gone since 1979. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I still go back and forth on who I think did this one. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think he wasn't alone. Because I mean, no. I don't know. <sighs> sure, he had an 11 and a half size foot, but if he had someone with him, right, they could have had the nine and a half. And all the different things, like he paired up with three out of the five body bodily fluid points that were there. Right. I do think that there may have been more people involved. There was a lot of theories and I didn't put them in here because they are just theories. A lot of the theories there were that were floating around was that like at one point in the case, a priest came forward, I think in the 80s and stated that he had heard four men. One of them had possibly confessed to him that they had all been a part of the crime. There was another story about another fellow prisoner saying that he had gotten drunk one night and was with Leroy and that he woke up bloody. There's been a lot of theories, but none of these have ever really proven to be more than just kind of conspiracy theories. The one I found the most interesting was the woman. A, a woman having a size shoe, you know, nine and a half foot, especially if it was a men's boot. If it's a woman wearing a men's boot, that sounds about like the right size if you're, you know, five, five or so. I don't know. That one... I could get I could almost think that maybe there was some woman with him that night that that was aiding him. I could get behind that. Yeah, that's kind of what I feel cuz three girls, that's that's a lot of girls. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I could think is, is that whoever did this had a knife or had a gun, had some kind of weapon to to scare the girls into into doing what they wanted and being compliant. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. Like I said, there have been so many theories. I, I'm leaning towards the personally that there was two people there, there that, at least two people there that night. I think that's to me makes sense for some of the discrepancies in the evidence with things like the boot print being a, a big piece or that print that if there was a partial print on the flashlight not really matching Leroy, that would make sense that it was maybe the other accomplice. Yeah. And the thing that I, I always come back to is that Leroy or Hart grew up a mile away from that camp. And yeah. I mean, if I look back on my childhood, if I grew up a mile away from a summer camp, I would be going all over the place. I'd want to go mm -hmm. explore. So I bet you he knew every inch of that land. Yep. And they had specifically said the reason he uh, avoided detection for four years, even after his initial escape was that he knew that land. He was he knew those those woods inside and out. I mean, they had been after him for four years and couldn't find him. Literally the only reason they even found him was an informant. It wasn't because of anything he had done to slip up. So Hart knew his way around that area big time. Yeah, and that's that's the scary part that I also think yeah. of. I I definitely agree with you that 
there had to be a second person because yeah like handling three different people just by yourself i mean let alone mm-hmm. kids or not that right. would be difficult the the shoe print fingerprints the bodily fluids mm-hmm. all that kind of i think points to a second person being there yeah I do too. Question I keep coming back to is, do I think Hart actually did it? And, you know, 90% to 10. There's still a 10% part of me that's like, ah, maybe he didn't. Maybe maybe he is wrongfully accused in this. I do think that this MO, and I think that's really important to point out, his MO fit, the MO for this murder fit Hart's MO from his previous rape pretty close. He, like I said, he left those women to die. He bound them. He drove them to those woods, which is his comfort place, and left them there. And they were only 18 and 19. So they really weren't much older than these girls. They they weren't. Yeah, that's that's a good point that the MO's very similar. And yeah, mm-hmm. if he if he I think you said he was twenty-two when he did that. Yeah, he was twenty-two. So I can only see him getting progressively worse as he gets older. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, he had been in prison for some time. Then he's, you know, hiding in the woods from the prison or from from cops. If this guy was a serial rapist, which kind of seems like he was, then that Girl Scout camp was literally convenient. Who knows? There could be a lot of a lot of skeletons in this guy's closet. This is all speculative, completely speculative, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Like, I wonder if local law enforcement, I mean, it was back, back then, but I almost wonder if you were to look back at this time period Mm -hmm. and see if there are any other missing persons right, or young females that disappeared or Mm -hmm. showed up murdered. Right. I'd be curious to to see about that. I, I really would because- to me, I, I do suspect that there's probably more than just two, you know, and he, like I said, he pled guilty to to those two previous rapes. I do wonder if there's more in his, his history on that than, than maybe what is known. Yeah, definitely. You know, I the one thing that I do have to kind of go back and forth on is, is that, or that kind of gets me a little bit. I know a big part of the, the of the debate early on in this case was that was racism maybe part of a play in this? Or did the sheriff have a vendetta against Hart because of his heritage or because he'd previously escaped? Or there were a lot of factors. Or was it because, you know, he was this big football hero? You know, maybe people were only supporting him because of that. There were a lot of pieces in the community within this case that I think kind of did color a little bit of this case, no matter one way or the other. I, I I don't know. I really don't know if I think that there was any bias on the side of the officers on this. I, I, I don't know. I wish I knew what the evidence had been that really made them go, this heart's our guy, hundred percent we're in, you know, to me, it does seem like the cave evidence is slightly circumstantial. So I would have to think that there was maybe more found there, but this is still an open case. So, or it's an, it's an unsolved case. So I feel like that information would have come out by now, but possibly not. We've seen that in other cold cases that they don't always release all the information. Yeah, that's definitely a hard one to kind of decipher because, I mean, I obviously racism is very weaved through in the U.S. history. Um, It's everywhere. Yeah. 
Um, And I don't know what it was like to be in Oklahoma. I've never been there. You have. I have. And I'm sure it's just like any other state. Racism is everywhere. I did live in Oklahoma and, you know, it's like everywhere, anywhere you go, there is racism. It does exist. It, you know, it's kind of in the fabric of all of the United States, all of our cultures here. I'm actually Middle Eastern American. And I know that racism exists. I I think a lot of us folks do. But I think what happens too is that oftentimes folks don't recognize that racism for what it is. And so I hesitate to say that this case didn't have that in it definitively, that that didn't color this case completely. Uh, There is a part of me that does go, maybe it was a slight factor or maybe it did have an impact. I would like to think it didn't, but you can't be 100% sure. With that said, a lot of the evidence did point towards Hart. And he was not an innocent person. He had already pleaded guilty to the rape and kidnapping of those other two girls. So, you know, I keep going back to this. I'm kind of on the fence about him. Deep down, I think it was. Like my gut says it was. But I don't know. There's still a slight part that goes, well, maybe it wasn't. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like I said before, I, I personally think it was definitely him. But I do think he had an accomplice that just hasn't come out of the woodwork yet, mm-hmm. or we just haven't gotten DNA. It's not in the system. And hopefully it'll come out eventually. I don't know. Like we lost, I think, a majority of the DNA in this case 30 yeah. plus years ago. But Right. It was. It, it's kind of been lost to time. But who knows? Maybe someone's memory will help, you know, jog something in the case or... Maybe some of the ancestry DNA stuff or maybe DNA science will come further along where even degraded samples can be brought back. So I haven't lost hope fully that that this case could be 100% solved and give these families some answers. There's one person I think who, who says it best in all of this, and this is actually Denise Milner's mom. She is quoted as saying, I do believe in God. Justice would be served regardless. And that crime was too powerful for man to serve justice, unquote. She also is quoted as saying, I'm not sure I understand what people mean by closure. To me, what I think about is she's still dead and the things that happened to her happened to her, no matter what the law decides, unquote. No matter who you think did or didn't do these crimes, Ash and I's opinion, you know, any of the theories, What it really comes down to is that at the end of the day, these families never got closure to the cruel rape and murders of their little girls. Like we said, hopefully DNA evidence will be able to help solve this case. And maybe one day it'll give these families some small, tiny moment of peace, or at the very least, some answers. This case still to this day breaks my heart. I hope Ash and I can one day have a follow-up to this where we can talk about new evidence that's been found or introduced, and maybe there's actually a solution to this crime, and we can all lay those girls' memories to to peace. Just wanted to say a big shout-out to my mama nerdling for her help on this research. It was pretty intense, so she really, really helped us on this case, hands down. And we also wanted to say a big shout out to you guys. Thank you, Nerdlings, for joining us on this episode. It means a lot to us. And if you want to know more about this case, I found a ton of amazing resources that I am happy to share. I thought they were fabulous, some really comprehensive reporting done on this, a really interesting timeline I found. 
lot of old um, archives from Tulsa World articles, things like that. I will put all of that information on our website for you guys, as well as some, some of the images so that you guys can hunt those down too. One thing I did want to say is that I found this really, really helpful website that I got a lot of the original articles from Tulsa World from, and it had had pictures and such in it, and it was called girlscoutmurders.com slash index.htm. I will also source or put it in our sources as well. But that site had a lot of phenomenal information on it about this case. I also encourage people to keep this story alive by researching this, keep talking about this case, and please reach out to the OSBI should you have any information regarding the rape and murders of Doris Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose back on that awful day on June 13th, 1977. All right, that concludes this episode, nerdlings. We will see you next week. Take care. And if you liked this episode or any others, please hit that subscribe button and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at crimetimenerds or check out our case notes at crimetimenerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is brand spanking new, which is at crimetimenerds and an email you can reach us at which is crimetimenerds at gmail.com. Until next time, you crime-loving nerds. 